Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome listeners and viewers to episode number 170 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. Nick is back to join us this week for this week's episode. Nick, welcome. Good to be here. I'm back off the bench. I love it. The sixth man. And he's ready. Sixth man of the year, baby. <laughs> I'm ready. So, so I'm going to kick it over to you, actually. And you want to start with uh, pricing? Yep, yep. And as listeners know, we always start by running through some pricing on, on the indices uh, from a month to date and a year to date point of view. So mm-hmm. I'll give a broad overview on what the month to date is. It's looking pretty good. We're up about five to six percent. And then still on the year to date, we're down in the 20, 20 to 28 um, percent. So from the top, the S&P 500 month to date, we're up 5.5 percent. Year to date, we're down 20.6 percent. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 5.4% month to date, down 16.7% year to date. The NASDAQ Composite Index is up 5.4% month to date and down 28.7% year to date. The IWM iShares Russell 2000 ETF is up 5.9% month to date, down 21.5% year to date. And the Vanguard FTSE All World XUS ETF is up 4.8% year to date and down 24.1% year, uh, excuse me, 4.8% month to date, 24.1% down year to date. It's been three trading days this yeah. quarter, three yeah, trading days. And we're going to get into that for, for listeners because I'm sure people are, are kind of anxious to hear our thoughts on that. Okay. Um, the, the treasury rates, the three month is sitting at 3.46. The two year treasury rate is sitting at 4.15. And the 10 year is at 3.76%. So very interesting, very interesting week. So we'll get right into the the big headlines and, and current events, and um, I think we should just start with you know why has the the market ripped higher? And I think you know ripped is appropriate. Ripped in three is days appropriate um, for almost six you percent know, average move. Yeah, when you see that when you see that kind of move, and I'm going to toss a couple things out there, but you know jump in as oh, yeah. as you see appropriate. One thing that's interesting to me is that the economic data that's come in is it's been soft or steady. There's, there's been nothing that's been a, a huge jump. Um, you know, you have PMI, you have jolts, you have the ADP employment change, all of that happened earlier this, this week. Um, not soft enough to breed this type of optimism. And a reminder to listeners, really at this point in the cycle, we'd be looking for softer data so that the market would see softer data and think the Fed would decrease its its likelihood of, of aggressive rate hike schedule. So that's kind of what the market's looking for. Sure. Data hasn't been that soft. Bad news is good news right now. Bad news is good news. Bad economic news is good news for the stock market. Another per- way of saying it. Precisely. So I think I think the headline here is is really what's going on in the Treasury market and just thinking about rates. Um, you had the, the big Credit Suisse story. Right? Oh, yeah, last week. A lot of fear-mongering a, a, a around that, which, in my opinion, has pushed people into some into buying some treasuries, which has brought those yields down. 
um, which opens the door to equity optimism from a cost of capital perspective, thinking down the road. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, where we were, I think that's one of the reasons. Then you had the the Royal Bank of Australia come out and and surprise with a softer rate hike than expected. So mm-hmm. everyone's looking at that and like, oh my gosh, would the Fed maybe do that? Are That'd more central great. banks going to cut back on their hike plans? You had the UN come out on Monday and they and um, it was uh, an annual report of the Global Economic Outlook, uh, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. And they actually said that the Fed risks causing significant harm to developing countries if it persists at the rapid rate rise. So the UN, a UN agency, basically came out and said, we need these really big, powerful central banks to, to pump the brakes. Otherwise, it's going to do even more harm to the global economy. Now, that's not necessarily the Fed's concern. The Fed is focused on the U.S., but it's still um, another case for why investors might be optimistic that the Fed will slow its pace relative to what it was a week ago. Right? Yeah, I think with the way you see uh, the markets react to some of the turmoil in uh, the UK over the past mm-hmm. couple of weeks, I do think it provides credence to that topic that the Fed's going to think, well, if we take this too far, it could end up biting us in the butt that if we cause a global recession that's deeper than needed, right? it will end up hurting us. Absolutely. So guess what? We do have to take that in, mm-hmm. into consideration. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the market's realizing that. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that kind of comes to mind with me when it just, I look at the market right now, over the past week, when you look at interest rate futures on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the market a week ago was pretty much dead set that we were going to see a 0.75 uh, interest rate hike by the Fed the first week of November. Yeah. You fast forward to now, they're dead set. They think it's going to be 0.5%. Yeah. In addition, when you look at next year, a week ago, the interest rate futures market, Nick, was expecting the Fed to begin lowering interest rates sometime in the second half of 23. Guess what? That timeline in the futures market is starting to get moved up. What does that mean for stocks? What does it mean for equity holders? It means that now the market is starting to price in more predictability of what the Fed's going to do. Mm-hmm. And what happened from the middle of September, I'm sorry, the middle of August through the end of September, the market had to begin pricing in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And when you start to have certainty come back to the market, you're going to see more stabilization in stock yeah. prices. When the market has to price in uncertainty, it takes things too far. And optimism. You'll see yeah. optimism as well. And I think just the market was pricing in that, that uncertainty in September. And as that comes back, optimism comes back. Mm-hmm. That should help. Yep. And here's my biggie. And Jenna can timestamp this. Today, it's October 6th. At the end of this month, we're going to be reporting corporate earnings for the third quarter. And everyone's going to stand around in a month and be like, oh, oh my gosh, I didn't know earnings were going to be this good. Yeah. Well, they're not listening to the Independent Advisors podcast, A, <laughs> and B, they had their head in the sand because they're so worried about their shadow. Yeah. Corporate profitability is not bad. Yeah, I have, uh, a, I have a piece on this later, right, too. Well, so we're, you're we're on gonna, it, then. We're gonna, see, we'll see what... We're going to get to get into this. I knew you'd love that piece, too. I'm on so. it, then. So another thing we haven't mentioned about you know, thinking about what's happened with this big pop in the market 
is is the technical level we were sitting at. I mm. think you had all of this this news that gave credence to a little bit more certainty, like you're like you're discussing. Yes. And where we were sitting was just it was primed to to bounce or or go lower. Um, so the way that kind of frame it in simplistic terms is. The market was testing that bottom from mm-hmm. June. Yep. And when you look at charting in, in layman's terms, it's a double bottom. And if you think about it in relation to a spring, that spring was loaded. Mm-hmm. And it was either going to statistically rip to the upside or have mm-hmm. a proper breakdown and make a new proper low. Yep. It's been three trading days. But what does it appear to you so far? I think we're... Uh... I think we're we're strong on the bounce. <laughs> it feels that way. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't. you had two strong days Monday, Tuesday this week. Yesterday on Wednesday, weakness in the morning. You had that profit taking, mm-hmm. and what happened throughout the day? Yeah, it buyers came, came in the entire day consistently. Yeah. yeah, I saw. I read read a bit of speculation too that there was some some really um, bullish uh, options trades in the in the middle of the afternoon yesterday that that helped push the bid up. I like um, that. Yeah. Very interesting. I so, like that. Either way, it's the, that type of market action that you're seeing on the third day after, after two consecutive sessions like that strong is, sessions. is very strong. Um, I, so, I guess the last point I want to make on this topic, just as bad as the market was from the middle of August to the end of September, mm-hmm. in similar market action, I would say, um, in May and June, we have to remember there's a lot of money in the sidelines for those time periods. I mentioned there's literally been buyer strikes and the opposite could easily happen in the near future. You could have seller strikes and you could see the bids on a lot of names go Mm -hmm. up quicker than most people think, especially in what the perception is a sluggish economic environment. I'm in the camp that a lot of that pessimism is way over baked in. It goes back mm-hmm. to my uncertainty comment. Just remember then this market could rip quick. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to have a ton of money on the sidelines too. When you look at all the different asset classes and, and their performance, particularly what's been going on in the bond market and the Absolutely. global bond market. Right. I mean, you have to imagine some of that is pain that investors have had to sit through, but a lot of it is, is capital raising due to the uncertainty. So that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Any other headlines? Uh, no, that's that's everything. I just thought we'd talk through that for, for listeners, so hopefully that was helpful. All right. Well, I'm going to kick it off with tweets, articles, and research from the week. I got a couple. And the first one I'm going to address is something called M2 Money Supply Growth. We're going old school. We're going back to the basics, baby. Academia time. You ready? Love it. All right. So let's start with what is M2, okay? M2 is a measure of money supply that includes cash, checking deposits, saving deposits, easily convertible funds, right? The reason I'm highlighting this is there was a tweet uh, by Cullen Roche on uh, September 27th. He's the CIO of Discipline Funds, okay? And he shows this M2 money supply growth year over year. And guess what's happening? It's really, really coming in after a dramatic jump right after COVID. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, why is this pertinent? Okay. It's pertinent because this could actually lead to disinflation. 
I am in the camp that you're going to see things level off. If we actually see disinflation, could you imagine what that means for the Fed and what it could mean for stocks? Uh, that's not in my base case. But this is the quote that Cullen had. M2 money supply growth absolutely melting down to 3.1% year over year. This data is very likely going to go negative in Q1 of 2023. Increasingly likely that deflation becomes the narrative in 2023. Disinflation is an absolute certainty, end quote. Now, that's an aggressive statement. It's a, it's a pretty juicy take. That's a hot, with, it, would you consider that a hot take? I would consider that a hot take with where we are. Okay. And, and I mean, I, I like it. So here's, like again, here's my point. My base case is you have kind of prices level off. I'm not looking for a retraction. Prices yeah. going back to pre-COVID. This gentleman, this CIO of Discipline Funds, mm -hmm. is insinuating based upon the data, in his opinion, that there's a likelihood you could actually see prices retrace. That's the definition of what they're mentioning mm -hmm. of disinflation. Disinflation, yeah. And I want to point out- The price of milk comes back down. The price of milk comes back down. Yeah. Why am I highlighting this? This is nowhere in anybody's base case right now on Wall Street. No, I'm not. Yeah. This is no one's base all. case. Yeah. If this ends up coming true, and I'm not saying that it will, and it's not in my base case, if this ends up happening, this is a major potential positive for the equity markets, for the bond oh, yeah. market that is no one's pricing in. Mm, and that's yeah. the point I wanted to make with this. Oh, that's very interesting. Any other comments mm. you want to make on that? I'm really trying to process it. I mean, it's a great chart, and Jenna will throw this up for 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 viewers. Um, I don't I don't have any other points. That's interesting, that's, isn't it? From a consumer perspective, I hope it happens. Yeah, I mean, think about the money <laughs> it puts in I, consumers' pockets, I, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I just think that we've been so focused year to date on looking over our shoulders for where the risk lies, mm -hmm. and I think people are losing sight that. Corporate profitability is nowhere, in my opinion, reflective of a lot of these stock prices. Mm -hmm. And there are some potential positives that could really shock this market and put money back into it. Mm -hmm. So just want to throw it out. This is one of those that no one's talking about. Yeah. Okay. Love, love that kind of research. It's out there. That's the best stuff. Here's my, here's my next thing I caught my eye. An extreme oversold indicator. Now, it's a tweet by our friend Charlie Bellello on September 26th. Big fans. Big fans of Charlie. So this chart that Jenna's gonna put up goes back to approximately the year 2002. And what this chart shows, Nick, is the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 indexer that are trading above their 50-day moving average. Mm -hmm. You're going to see two extremes on this chart. When the figure is above 90%, that's generally understood that the market is extreme overbought. Mm -hmm. And when we are sub 10%, you are in what we would deem to be the extreme oversold area of the market. Because again, if less than 10% of all stocks are trading above their 50-day moving average, what does that tell you? 
right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Bullish. going back to 2002, Nick, there were 11 instances mm -hmm. where the S&P 500 was in this extreme oversold period. Yeah, I was just counting them. <laughs> Did I do good? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So ready for this? Uh, this is the next thing that Jenna's going to put up. What happens after these readings are so bearish, right? Because last week when this data came out, things were pretty poor mm, oh from yeah. a technical basis, okay? Yeah. So when you have readings this poor, I'm going to read to you, going back to December of 2001, the average forward-looking returns for the S&P 500, and Charlie clarified these are total returns, including dividends, sir. Are you yeah, ready? Yeah, total shareholder return, yeah. Here we go. One month later, market up 4.2%. Well, heck, we already did that in, 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 in two days. Uh, three months forward, on average, 6.2%. Six months later, on average, 13.6% higher. Nine months later, 22.1% higher. One year later, on average, 31.5%. Two year later, cumulative, cumulative return, 49%. The stats are telling you that things were extreme last week. Mm -hmm. People were selling everything last week. You saw the conservative areas of the market roll over. Um, Mark, our chief investment officer, was bringing that topic up during our investment committee meeting on Monday. Yeah, he did, yep. And I just wanna highlight this because statistically speaking, this is insane to me that it, things got kind of this, this crazy. So I just wanna throw it out there and see what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think this is a our our podcast is going to be well themed today because I think this when you look at this chart and you think about some of these oversold conditions and um, what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, it makes it makes sense. You know, that's this is another form of that t the strong technicals that that we were speaking about. Yep. It's not only just at the charting level. I mean, there's all different types of technical levels you can look at. This yep. is one of them. Um, and you can see when you look at this chart, this um, the the percentage of stocks above the 50-day moving average. You can see how bouncing back and forth it is. It's not a pretty chart, mm -mm. right? You really have to focus on where those extreme conditions are. That's right. So you, it, it kind of makes sense that that chart will be ugly because of the way the markets move. The markets aren't this beautiful linear, you know, trajectory. If they were, uh, you wouldn't get the returns you get. Exactly. Um, it's not as as we all know. It's not smooth and it's not always easy um so this is a perfect example of some of those technicals that we were talking about yeah and putting some some really good statistics behind it mm -hmm. right absolutely yeah. so my last piece before i turn it over to you nick is i ran across a chart of ceo confidence and this is from the conference board in goldman sachs just about a week ago mm. but i got to give credit to the trader that i follow he has quite the handle a Twitter handle. You ready yeah. for this? Yeah. I referenced this before. This is Wall Street Jesus. That's what he considers himself. Yeah, I follow him as well. And he's got like, <laughs> I don't know, 20, 30, 40,000 followers. And yeah. he, he posts some pretty good content. Yeah, he does. So this this chart that, that uh, this trader posted is CEO confidence going back to the 70s. And what you're going to find is this is just now the sixth time that CEO confidence has been this poor since the mid-70s. Mm -hmm. 
doesn't happen this often when pessimism is high. And you want to guess what my argument is to this chart? Yeah, what, 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 what is it? If pessimism can be this bad and corporate earnings are literally hanging in there, what's going to happen when this stuff changes and mm. CEO confidence starts to recover? Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to stock earnings in general at that point? Yeah. The contrarian part of me is like, if corporate earnings can hang in there in, in light of CEO confidence literally being at decades lows, mm -hmm. that's a good contrarian indicator for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way that I interpret this data. Yeah. Yeah, when I see these charts, I always want to see the, the raw data behind it. Oh, I know I'm, you're the numbers I'm, guy. I know you want to see it. I'm just always curious, right? Because it, they're, they're typically based on surveys. And, is, and, yep. and they'll send them out to, I mean, oftentimes trillions of dollars worth of, of investing. Mm -hmm. um, like the, the BOFA fund manager survey is a fantastic survey. That's it a great one. It is a fantastic one, survey. Which is why people will follow it because it, it, it gives a good pulse. I'm not as familiar with this one. This one's from Goldman Sachs. Um, but, but it's just interesting to me because I know there's been, there, I can think of one stock off the top of my head that their CEO came out a couple of weeks ago and said the opposite. He's like, I've never been more positive on the stock, which obviously is not the trend. Um, sure. You see a lot more earnings projections getting cut. But anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, and what, it's, I, what, it's I, think you, what I think you tend to see is you tend to see the um, uh, companies that have been run better or maybe they're in advantageous sectors, you know, yeah. they're optimistic, but then, you know, the others that are missing, you know, it's an easy excuse to be like, oh, it's a macro environment. That's why I'm missing earnings. Yeah, it's the, the general, the, the listener shouldn't take my one comment as, no, as me disagreeing with this chart. It's, yeah. it, the, the generalization is that CEOs are... Are increasing pessimistic, uh, pessimistic right now. yeah absolutely so just imagine when things recover so i'll send it back to you and we'll see what you got this week yeah so i'm going to start over in in uh germany talking about uh their stocks and bonds and this is really just to give give investors another perspective as to what's going on in the in the global economy and the global markets as well so this is a tweet from lisa abramowitz on 10 4 She's a so, Bloomberg uh, anchor. Bloomberg anchors, yeah, she's great. Um, and it is a, uh, it's a chart here um, that we'll throw up on the screen for you that shows year-over-year -year rolling returns for a 50-50 uh, German 10-year government bond and equity portfolio, um, and just shows that you know it's again it's not one of those beautiful charts, but um, you know focus on the the bottom lines there where 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 you draw down. And she says German. Bonds and stocks are posting their second worst collective performance since the hyperinflation of the 1920s, and she picked this up from Deutsche Bank's uh, Jim Jim Reed. Um, and listen, I know investors might not be that interested in this piece. So why do I bring it up? I bring it up to point out how wild the bond market's been. Mark and I spent a lot of time last podcast talking about that, um, and then just to to kind of show some of the, the, the volatility and the downside of multiple asset allocations and all at um, once, all at once is pretty rare. And I'm not sure if that's at, at this point, hopefully we've communicated that well to listeners, but this is yet another example of how rare it is that we're seeing what we're seeing in the, in the bond market and the equity market. It's been a tough year. For not only almost in our, all asset classes for all asset classes and not only in our markets but in other other um 
big I mean, market. It's like, well put. Like I mean, we kind of talked about, and this is in relational to the 60-40 conversation Mark and I have had in the past on the yeah, podcast, exactly. right? That the average balanced, quote-unquote, moderate risk portfolio of about 60% equities, 40% bonds. The stats I had went back to the 70s, and it was the worst time for a balanced portfolio since the 70s. Yeah. I like this because it kind of puts it on steroids and takes it back and puts it into context back yeah. to the 20s. Back to the 20s. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, the thing I'm excited about is I'm a contrarian guy, right? I like to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing a lot of times. And for me, this is telling me that statistically speaking, we're at a pretty good point. Yeah. Looking absolutely. forward. Looking forward. Yeah, of course. You look five, six, seven years down the road, and I said this last week too. Um, you're probably going to have above average compared to historical returns. You're going to, yeah. In my view, that's a highly likelihood. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So that was my first one, a quick one for you. And, and this is the fun one. This is about S&P. This is going to get me going? This is going to get you going. You're going to love this. This is about S&P 500 uh, earnings per share projections. Um, and this is a tweet from Aisha Tariq. She's a co-founder of TraderAid. She's spent 18 years in banking and macro research. Um, uh, there's a chart. That's a, I really love this chart. It's a great chart. And she, uh, Aisha says the following, earnings estimates continue to remain too high for the S&P 500. We're looking at an impending earnings recession and estimates need to come down. Now, she is clearly saying this from kind of a bearish perspective. Mm -hmm. That's at least how I'm reading it. Sure. I'm not saying that I'm bearish by any means. I think it's a great chart to point out what we've talked about in the past and what you've already talked about in the podcast here, which is when you look at this chart and you see where earnings estimates currently lie, it's not indicative of the price action that we've seen. That's right. Um, it, she's right. Earnings, earnings estimates need to come down if all of this price action is is. I don't want to say accurate. That's the wrong word. But here's the way that I say it. One of two things have to happen. Either earnings need to come down to catch up to the falling stock prices mm -hmm. or stock prices have to rally to catch up with the earnings resiliency. Exactly. One of two things is going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what this chart is, is in, in my opinion, showing. So my point with this is, when you look at S&P 500 earnings per share estimates and you look at 2021, and I think by the time you get to December 31st of this year and you compare the year over year, I'm speculating to you, my opinion, the number's not gonna be negative year over year. And look at the average stock price, no. what's happened year over year. There's a disconnection. Exactly. I'm no. in the camp that stocks are gonna have to catch up to earnings. Yeah, a little bit of a, a reversion to the mean, if you will. I think we had such a pop from COVID and the market got a little ahead of itself, understandably, I think. And now we've had this reversion back. And I think I fully expect to see some earnings revisions and you're going to have some bad quarters from a number of companies. There's, there's there'll be companies been... and sectors that could hit more than others in a sluggish economy. Exactly. And, and you're going to have some of that, a little bit more of a 
variable quarter. It's going to be a little bit spread out. But I think when you take all of that as a whole, I agree with you. I think it's going to be much stronger. It's going to be more similar to what this chart looks like. It might come down a little bit, mm -hmm. but it's not going to come down like these green bars of past recession. No, I do not think that'll be the case in my opinion. Yeah. In my opinion. In, in which case the market, like you're like you're pointing out, has to kind of revert back to that mean, um, maybe in not such a volatile fashion that we saw in 2020, but uh, along those lines. Yeah, I mean, if you start to see, you know, at the end of this month, you start to see earnings data come in. I think the benchmark's pretty low for the third quarter. If you start to see some earnings data come in stronger than Wall Street's anticipating, not only are you going to have a, a seller strike, you're going to have some bids. Mm -hmm. There are be pretty, pretty nice bids in the market near the end of this month. So, you know, it, my two cents, completely my opinion, at where we're at right now, I think there's more risk to the upside ripping than a complete breakdown in the market making yeah. a new low. My two cents. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in the same camp. I think, you know, between what we saw with this recent price action, that gives me a lot of confidence behind what you're what you're saying. The technicals look great. This chart, the earnings projections. A lot of times, if companies know that they're going to miss really bad, they get out in front of it. They pre-announce. They pre-announce. Not seen a ton. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it's still a little early, but you know, we've seen a couple little pieces here and there, but it's not overwhelming. Um, so no, I, I mean, I, you know, yeah. the things you'd expect, the more economically sensitive areas of the market, mm -hmm. with the more cyclical areas, we've talked about that term in the past, you're seeing, you've saw that, but yeah. not in a way that would be in relational to the stock prices, the way they sold off recently. Exactly. And the economic data, like we talked about at the very beginning, is not crashing. Yeah, it's I mean, very steady. The last point there, Nick, and you and I talked about it yesterday, got the jobs report on Friday. Oh, yeah, we didn't even mention that. I should have mentioned that. That's all right. No, that's I, just, very, I just thought of it. That's a very big, big, uh, big got the jobs report yeah. for September. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, is the consensus around 250, 250,000? That sound about right? Uh, I, that sounds right, but I can I can pull it up. All right. Well, as Nick pulls this up, I will talk about why this is important for the market. Yeah, that's perfect. So the market looks very closely at the monthly employment data that the Bureau of Labor Statistics issues. And it is the government's um, view of the amount of job gains for the previous month. Mm -hmm. It also releases important data such as uh, average hour worked, uh, worked in the month, average hourly earnings, mm -hmm. gains, or decreases. Yep. And what's been unique about this year is despite sluggishness in the economy, you haven't seen the normal negative job growth that would be associated mm. with such a sluggish economy. Exactly. And the argument that I'm making is that for a couple of years in this post-COVID environment, companies were so lean on workers that even if things are slowing down and the economy is sluggish, I'd argue a lot of them are right-sized, mm -hmm. and you're not going to see the normal layoff kind of routine that you would see in an economic slowdown. Yeah. So with that being said, what's the consensus for Friday? You're, you're correct. The consensus is 250. So um, to and throw it out there, based upon our conversation earlier, what happens, Nick, generally speaking, if that number comes in strong, stronger? If in this... In this market environment, we, we would actually want it to come in a little weaker. If it we comes would. in stronger, you're going to see a bid. Bid to the downside would be my, would be 
in, the safe bet. That's right. And so the, the reason the market would react that way is the market will start thinking, well, the Federal Reserve is probably going to have to keep their foot in the pedal. Exactly. You know, if we got this economic strength, the companies are still hiring, you know, we're going to have to try to cool this down. We might have to get a little more aggressive with our interest rate hikes. Right. That's the way the market is reacting to this data. Exactly. So if if you're one who's bullish on equities, you want to see a headline number less than 250. Less than 250. That's what you want. That's what you want tomorrow. And this sounds bad to say from a humanitarian perspective but you also want to see the unemployment rate tick up a little bit you do that's that's what the market wants to now see. now think of it this way it should be no surprise if those two things happen why the fed's been consistently raising every six weeks the for f- how many months the fed's trying to this get is that. what they're that's... attempting to do you know one thing i got like insane about in september is everyone's like oh the economic data starting to come in soft well, what do you think's gonna happen yeah they're raising interest rates consistently every six weeks. It's also not been like crazy soft. I know. For the, it's like, for the, for the path, right? I gee, mean, you it, gave the patient medicine. They're reacting to the medicine. I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's right. a fantastic Sorry, point. Sorry, I'm off my soapbox. No, that, I, I'm not going to turn my head towards Jetta because she's probably already looking at me. So. <laughs> I love it. Um, so I have, I have one other piece and it's just a quick one. Um, and this is really just an interesting, interesting fact on options. Um, it's a tweet from, and I'm, I'm going to mess up this name. So apologies. She's a wall street reporter, uh, Gunjan Banjeri. I think that's uh, pretty good. Close maybe. Yep. Uh, she's a, she's a, a wall street journal. Yeah. Um, she, she's a writer. A, yeah. Financial services writer. Um, and she picked up this piece of research from Goldman Sachs, and she says the following: In total, options tied to roughly 1.6 trillion of stock indexes and exchange-traded funds change hand each day. Each that, day. Each day, and that's eight times the 204 billion of individual stocks. And there's a chart here. And listen, I I don't think this is gonna be incredibly interesting to listeners but it it's it caught my eye i I, i'm just curious what you think so i've seen a lot of pieces of research over the past couple of months as people have attempted to provide analogies to 07 through 09 they're trying to look for justifications that something is wrong with the global monetary system And one of the Mm -hmm. pieces of data that I keep seeing inching up is if you look at the total dollar value of derivatives in general, Mm -hmm. it's at this ultra high point. And the problem I have with these relations is that these types of options could be used for so many different reasons. There, it's an unfathomable, unfathomable amount of reasons that you can use this stuff. And so it kind of the best analogy I could provide and follow me here for a second. Mm-hmm. When you see insider stock selling, there could be a multitude of reasons as mm-hmm. to why an insider of a company is mm-hmm. selling their company stock. Yep. Right. And you're not going to know. You don't really know the reasons why. It could be that it's too much of their portfolio, uh, their overall liquid net worth. They might still like the company. They could have a strategy with their advisor where they take it systematically, systematically cut down because of their exposure to the company so much. It could be for vacation. Yeah, could be. The, yeah, 
you know, uh, a kid going to college. So there's only one reason someone buys their own company stock. Yep. They think it's going to move higher. But there's so many reasons as to why they could sell it. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is the liquidity and depth of these option markets on indices is becoming so deep and so liquid yep. that I think now it's being used for a multitude of purposes for people to hedge. Yeah. That the days of sitting there and saying, well, this has become such a big thing that I think it's going to implode the monetary system. Yeah. Um, anything's possible. Yeah. I'm just, I think that people are trying to justify now their viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And this is not applicable in the scenario. Yeah. That's my feelings. I have two points to respond to you, uh, both in agreement. The first one is when people say that if you look at the overall volume and action in the derivatives market, you know, that's indicative of some problem in the global monetary system. I actually fundamentally disagree with that because of the access, the ease of access to the derivatives market relative to compared 10 to 30 years ago. years ago or even 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Maybe even five years ago. I mean, you think about some of these these newer platforms that you can just sign up on your phone and start trading. Options, I mean, futures, etc. Options, futures, and a lot of them. To make sense of this chart, a lot of them, you'll only be allowed to to bet on options on ETFs because of a liquidity thing. Another another point. The second point I have to make is is trying to make sense of this chart. Why would people take more bets on on ETFs than individual stocks? Hedging, uh, as as my guess as to what's behind a lot of this, um, and, and liquidity. If you if you're a big hedge fund and you're trying to hedge your position out there, and so you're going to go buy some puts, um, maybe you can just go buy a put on an, on a liquid ETF because you know you can get out of that position quicker, or maybe the the pricing out there is better. Who knows? Exactly. But it it also will provide you more protection. So maybe you can go out and buy you know, a, a few put contracts to cover, you know, 30% of your portfolio instead of going out and buying 30 put contracts. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of that I yeah. think going on as well. And to very simplistically put it in layman's terms, what's a very popular hedge fund strategy, and I'm going to pick on the technology sector, mm. what a hedge fund might do is pick 10 names within the technology sector that they really think are going to outperform the index. Yeah. And then what they'll do is they'll put a corresponding trade on that just bets the technology sector is going to go down in general. Yeah. And their goal is to derive the difference of return yeah. of those 10 companies they picked versus the index. And so you have all those different types of strategies where people, you know, it might look as if they're over levered in one place, but they might own something that counterbalances it that's exactly. not in the same asset class. Yeah i.e. this is a derivative. The last comment I have on this is the amount of uh, options that are puts that are designed to protect someone when the market goes down is extraordinarily high mm -hmm. when you look at this chart, yeah. which tells me people are prepared. They are hedged. They are positioned for protection for further downside. And when everyone is positioned a certain way, Nick, what tends to happen? The opposite. The opposite. <laughs> if everyone is expecting something to happen, 
that becomes priced in and usually it doesn't happen. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Love this. Yeah. Anything else you want to discuss before I go to the financial planning topic of the week? No, that, that was everything. Well, I got about a quick one, about five minutes here on this one. I want to bring up this week on our financial planning topic of the week, Nick, capital gains distributions from mutual funds. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay the land first with what is a capital gains distribution? Okay. A capital gains distribution is a payment by a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund of a portion of the proceeds from the fund's sales of stocks or other assets from within its portfolio. It is the investor's pro rata share of the proceeds from the fund's transactions. It is not, however, Nick, a share of the fund's overall profit. The fund may gain or lose money over the course of the year, and your balance will rise or fall accordingly. But if the fund gained from the sale of any of its stocks during the year, it will make capital gains distributions to its shareholders. Mm -hmm. Mutual funds are required by law to make regular capital gains distributions to their shareholders. The owners of mutual fund shares have the option to take the capital gains distribution in the form of immediate payments or to reinvest it in additional fund shares. Now, my second topic, tax considerations of capital gains distributions. Holders of mutual fund shares are required to pay taxes on capital gains distributions made by the funds they own, whether or not the money is reinvested into additional shares. There's an exception for municipal bond funds, which are tax exempt at the federal level and usually at the state level, depending upon the fund. The taxes are not due for that tax year if the investor owns the fund as part of an IRA, 401k, or another tax-deferred retirement plan. The taxes will be due when the funds are withdrawn after retirement. If the fund is not in a retirement plan, the taxes are due for the tax reporting period. So I'm done with my educational portion. Now I'm going to give you my editorial slant, baby. Ready for this, Nick? Yeah, I see a Barron's article coming up. I'm coming in hot. I love it. I'm coming in hot. I'm putting on my seatbelt. Okay. I'm highlighting this because Barron's had an article on September 21st that discusses the huge outflows in mutual funds this year, in which it could cause large, forced capital gains distributions from funds that are proportionally spreading that among all shareholders no matter how long they've been a shareholder, Nick. Why? Funds must sell stocks to meet redemptions. That causes them to realize gains. Yeah. You might be a newer investor in a fund and be left holding the bag on a large embedded tax gain on a fund. This is one of the negatives, especially for mutual funds that should be known to investors who invest in them and after-tax accounts. And what's about to happen over the next couple of months, because most funds issue these long-term and short-term uh, capital gains in the fourth quarter, primarily in October and November. Mm -hmm. So I want to point this out, because let's say that you wanted to get back into the market, and you did some research, and you were going to pick XYZ Mutual Fund and you're about to drop that ticket, you start to see the market coming back, it's an after-tax brokerage account, I'm gonna pop 50 grand into that XYZ fund. Six weeks later, you might get a capital gains distribution 
So what my words of wisdom is, do some research and see what their estimated capital gains, you can call that fund provider, that custodian, that sponsor, they can give you an estimate. And they'll also give you the date that if you buy a fund after a certain date that you're not subjected to those capital gains, we're kind of at this period where I want to present people caution right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Makes yeah. sense? Yeah. Anything you want to add to that? I just have a question for you. Yeah. Um, sorry if I'm going to catch you off guard on this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Coming um, hot. <laughs> would something like this be significant enough for you to, if a, if a, if a investor was dead set on not owning an individual stock or an individual bond, they say, listen, I want just a product that's diversified in and of itself. Yes. Is something like this significant enough in a taxable account where you would say, hey, I know you really like your mutual funds maybe consider an ETF that's a similar type of ETF. My response would be either consider a fund that might be newer with a similar strategy. Consider a mutual fund or ETF that doesn't have those embedded tax gains. So the risk of this, in my opinion, are the very large, um, long-dated mutual funds. And I'm going to throw out an example, and this is not a recommendation for or against this name, but a name like Fidelity Contra or Fidelity Magellan, funds that have been around for decades on end, and they might have owned Apple for 20 years, and they got forced uh, redemptions this year, and guess what? They had to trim some of that Apple that they bought 15 years ago, yeah. and you just become a shareholder, Nick, in October, and then you get slated with someone yeah, else's yeah, yeah. tax bill. So I throw this out there because... You just want to maybe do a little bit of homework that if you're going to be buying some of this stuff here coming up, there are some cutoffs that you might want to wait for if you really want that fund, or you might want to consider a like fund. Um, again, this is not recommendations for or against. You take Contra as an example. Uh, Bill Danoff runs a sister fund called yeah, uh, New they, Insights. Yeah. It's pretty much the same strategy. Yeah. So or, like, there's, there's things like that that you could do. Or they have like, they'll have newer funds that literally mimic another fund they do and if you're yeah so there's I've a seen, lot of I've things you can do you know it's maybe instead of buying um the s p 500 index that's sponsored by xyz popular fund company you go with maybe a newer one that doesn't have that those large embedded gains yeah a newer e, a newer etf newly that, issued yeah that's yeah, yeah that's just things to keep in mind if it's a retirement account doesn't matter Right. Well, that's kind of why I was bringing up the ETF thing, because if if you just want to get exposure to the market and you're looking at a mutual fund like an S&P 500 and you're saying, OK, like a like a Danoff or something like that. A lot of people like those because of the track record, because you yes. know that they're a great manager. Yes. But it's to, to your point, like maybe you, you pick something that's newer, but then it's like, well, well I don't know this manager as well or, or, or something like that. But would it ever shift you into thinking, well, maybe I just go buy and uh, spy? Yeah. SPY. Yeah. Yeah. And again, these are not recommendations for or against these names. We're giving you examples of this. And it's just a consideration that I think a lot of people glaze over. And the Barron's article reminded me of it. This also happened uh, pretty dramatically in um, in 08 and 09. Oh, yeah. This happened dramatically in 01, 02 after the tech bubble. Lots of redemptions. You know, uh, back in the tech bubble, people were, you know, buying things like the Mundernet Net Fund, which was the hot internet fund at the time. 
and they were trying to pick that thing off the bottom. Well, they had so many redemptions that year, so much in large embedded gains that these newer shareholders got caught holding the bag on the mm -hmm. tax liability in these after-tax accounts. I just want to throw it out there that yeah. it's something that's not talked about as much these days. That's important. It's interesting. It's another reason why I like investing in individual securities. Uh, yeah. You don't absolutely. have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All that's, right, so that is my financial planning topic of the week. Nick, before we round out on podcast number 170 of the Independent Advisors, do you want to sign off with any words of wisdom? Anything you want to talk about football this weekend? Anything you got for me? I, I don't have anything for, for listeners. Uh, this has been fun. All right. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Next week's episode will be number 171. And we will see you then. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.